0: Yeah, how do you follow that up? I don't know. (laughs) we just turn some tables and then we'll go from here. Oh, there's still... yeah, Martin. It's um, page uh, page 834 in the Pew Bibles. Um, I want to start today by reading um, a verse from John. And it is John's aim of the whole Gospel. That's why John wrote the Book of John, the Gospel of John. And it's in chapter 20, verse um, 31. We can read 30 and 31. Um, It's John 20, from verse 30. And it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So anything that you read in the book of John, you have to see in the light of this verse. Because that's John telling us, this is why I wrote the book. So a little bit of background. Um, We read here that it was the Passover of the Jews. Um, it was one of the three big celebrations of the year for the Jews, and every male was male Jew was expected to show up in Jerusalem and to worship, um, unless they were ill or there was something else that they couldn't come to to Jerusalem. And on Passover they would celebrate their exodus from. uh, from Egypt, where they had been slaves for 400 years. And God freed them through Moses. And back then, God performed 10 miraculous signs. We call them 10 plagues mostly, but it's really signs that he did against the Egyptian gods. And the last one of these signs was the death of the firstborn of every family in all of Egypt. And it sounds very harsh, But that's God doing to Pharaoh, what Pharaoh did to the Jews, to his people. Pharaoh was actually not just killing the firstborn, he was killing all the boys of the Jews. And there was only one way of avoiding that. And that was, you had to find a male lamb that was spotless, kill it, and paint your door frames with blood. God would go through Egypt that night and would kill every firstborn son in every house that did not have blood. On the doorposts. And that's the celebration that was going on in Jerusalem at that time. And then um, Jerusalem was a big city. So if you imagine a city 2,000 years ago of about 80,000 in population, when it came to Passover, the big celebrations, the city filled up to 250,000 people. That's a quarter of a million people in ancient Jerusalem. Um, it's a lot of people, and you have to imagine they have to come and bring sacrifices. Sacrifices require animals, so some of them would come with their little lambs and their sheep, and some with bulls and who knows what. And there was lots going on. Also, at the same time when Jesus was alive, there was a guy who was the king of that area, and he liked building. He convinced the Jews that he would tear down their temple, that they would still had from whenever they came back out of exile. And he would build a new one, a massive, impressive building. So there was work going on. And if you want to put that picture up, that's a picture of um, the Temple mound. You have to imagine there's a little hill going on underneath the hill. The tip of the hill is where you see the number one that's quite in the center. And Herod was going to build a temple, but the temple would be way too big for this little hill. So he decided to make to build a big plateau All this was basically earth and soil and building structure that he put under this big massive plateau there. And he was building that while Jesus was alive. He was actually building that even 30 years after Jesus had died. The thing only stood for about five years and was then torn down by the Romans completely. And all we have left of it is the um, West wall in Jerusalem that the Jews go to. And it was an absolute stunning thing There's, I think Josephus or somebody said, if you haven't seen the temple in Jerusalem, you've never seen a beautiful building in your life. So if you want to go and search that online, look for Herod's temple on YouTube and it's impressive what people have created. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem um, and it was very, very busy. It wasn't the first time Jesus was in Jerusalem. Jesus went every year. He was a good Jew. Every Jewish man was supposed to be in Jerusalem at Passover, so he would have gone every year. Um, and if you want to imagine what it was like, maybe imagine Lincoln Christmas Market, that's the closest I could find. Uh, I've only been a few years back. But there's a few bottlenecks where it's just people all just everywhere, you can't go anywhere. It's uh, you're always touching, touching somebody. Imagine that and imagine a bunch of cows and sheep in there, Roman soldiers on horses carts with big rocks that are being moved through there and construction happening on both sides without the health and safety that we have today so there was a lot going on it was a yeah it was buzzing and bursting with people and into this chaos Jesus and his disciples come it was familiar to Jesus as I said he went every year so it was nothing new and if you, if you see this whole complex here, imagine that on one side it's, it's, um, the, there's some valleys and there's not much happening. But on the other side of the complex, I think towards this side, that's where the city is. It wasn't far away. So they built this 150 foot high wall, and on the bottom of it were market stalls. That was a market street. So they had to build bridges over these little streets and all this, and were carrying stuff around. Just go online and have a look. I, I was very fascinated and got quite sidetracked <laughs> by doing that in my preparation. It's just absolutely fascinating how they did all this stuff. So now, Jesus came there every year, but this year was different. John had pronounced Jesus the Lamb of God. That's what happened at Passover. You would find the Lamb, a spotless Lamb, and you would say, this is the Lamb. Then you would go to the temple. You would have it checked over. Then you would take it home and live with the Lamb. And then after some time, he would kill it. So Jesus was now announced the Lamb of God. He wasn't just a street preacher. He wasn't just a guy. He was, people knew he was the Lamb of God. He was in ministry now. And there's two cleansings of the temple. There's one that we're talking about now. And another one that John is not talking about, but the other Gospels. That is when he cleansed the temple just before his crucifixion. So Jesus came into the temple. If you look at this side, there's two like gray bits in the middle, like quite central. There was two stairways that went through the plateau up. One was enter, entry, the other one was exit. So you can have a nice flow. People can come in and come out. Um, So Jesus came up somewhere there. And the big area around the temple is called the Gentiles' Chord. So that's where Gentiles, the non-Jews could come. And they could visit and um, meet God. That's as close as they could come. And then Jesus comes in, and as every time, this whole place is filled with animals and with people, and there's just lots of business going on. People had to change the money, we read, because the Jews didn't accept any Roman or foreign money in the temple because it wasn't holy. It had a picture of the Um, of Caesar on it and that would have been idol worship and Jews don't do that. So at extortionate rate you have to change your money and lose a lot of money but that's the only way they can pay for it. And I don't know how you imagine the temple cleansing. I always have this picture of Jesus just going crazy, berserk and kicking things over shouting, screaming, smacking, hitting Mm. and just, yeah, almost foaming by them on the mouth. But it's not. I read this and it says here that Jesus came into the temple, saw it, and then verse fifteen he says and making a whip out of cords. So he was there watching all this and while he's walking around and looking at it, he's making this little whip. It's not like a big lamp or whip that you can crack, it's more like a little one with like lots of little tussles. Tassels? Tassels? Tassels. Sorry, I'm German for those who don't know. Um, And you would have used this to just drive your sheep and your cows You just smack them gently so they know where to go. So he's making this little thing. His reaction to this irreverent business is not rash. He doesn't just see it and then all of a sudden something clicks in his head and he just goes crazy. He's angry and I'm sure he was angry every year he came. So we read in, um, in Luke, I want to say it's Luke 2, when he went as a young boy at 12 years old, he, or, he knew this is my father's house. Mm-hmm. So every year he went, he would have had the same thoughts. But this time he was pronounced the Lamb of God, the Messiah. And so he was there. He was very, very clear about what he was doing. He wasn't in some kind of red mist moment. And one of the things that you had to do for the celebration of Passover was you had to clean your whole house of leaven or yeast. Because that's a symbol for sin most of the time in the scriptures. And so here was the beginning of the Passover. And Jesus comes into the temple and his father's house is full of sin. So what he does is he cleans it. He cleans it out. He drove out the sheep and the oxen. I don't know how he did it. It He was probably shouting as well, because you have to. There's lots of sheep and oxen. You have to just go and smack them and yeah, make a move. And what's going to happen if you start chasing all these cows and these sheep around? Obviously, the people who sell them will run after them. They want to calm them down. And if you imagine this place full of people, full of animals, where are the animals going to run? They're going to run down the stairs. there's people coming up the stairs, and they're going to run into the city. And there's marketplaces in the city, market roads in the city, everything's full of people. So just imagine the chaos going on. These people walking up, no, 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 come back down. And there's the temple guard that's probably (laughs) trying to say to people, calm down, everyone, stay calm, stay calm. And trying to guide everyone out. But Jesus is creating quite a bit of chaos here. And then to add to the chaos, he goes to these money changers, throws all their money on the floor, their holy money, knocks over their tables, and you can see these money changers. They've paid a lot of money to get this money, to change it. They will be running around, crawling around, grabbing all the money they can get. And so you can see all this madness going on. And then what I found interesting is he doesn't, I always had this imagination that he kicked the, Cage with all the birds in there so the birds can fly free. He doesn't. He tells the pigeon sellers, take these things out of, my, out of my father's house. And somebody pointed out, look how gentle he is, even with the doves, because apparently pigeons can die of stress. So these guys are taking him out. And then he makes this amazing claim. He says, do not, take my, do not make my father's house a house of trade. What fascinated me as well is, there's one man, this is a massive, massive area, but he managed to get all these animals going, knock over all this stuff, and nobody stopping him. The temple guard was probably trying to keep everything under control, but nobody actually went to Jesus. The religious leaders would have come to look and see what he did, but nobody stopped him. And Jesus created all this chaos in the temple and then he claimed the temple is my father's house. That's a big claim. Mm. The Jews were saying we are Abraham's children and they could trace their lineage back all the way to Abraham. And if Jesus now claims Jesus, is my, uh, God is my father, this is my father's house, the temple that you come to worship in, he claims that he is at least part God. So if I say, I'm my father's son, I'm, I've got my father's DNA. Mm-hmm. Who, would dare to say, uh, who would dare to say such a thing? Is it not blasphemy? If you claim that God is your father, surely you're claiming that you at least part God. And today, thankfully, we have the whole scriptures. One of the reasons why John writes this gospel is to help us, to persuade us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And today we have the scriptures and the the fullness of the scriptures. This is all that God wanted to give us, not more and not less. And that's why it's important that people like Barnabas and the go abroad, translate this into a heart language that people understand and people can learn that Jesus is the Son of God. And it was blasphemy what Jesus said to the Jews. A little later in John 5, we read, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which was one rule, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And if you go through John, there's 26 verses of Jesus calling God my father. That's not the prayers included where he says, Father. It it was a big thing. It is a big thing in the Gospel of John. And the interesting thing is Jesus doesn't explain anything. He says, get out, take these out. Don't make my Father's house a house of trade. And he just left it there. I'm amazed that Jesus would consider the temple his father's house. Because you see all this corruption going on. The leaders, the religious leaders were proud, arrogant, horrible people. They were hypocrites. You had all this business, all this business that wasn't supposed to happen in the temple. The guy who actually built the temple was an (coughs) absolute godless man. And The more I look into it, the more I'm surprised that the Jews would say, okay, yeah, you can build a temple for our God. He was a horrible, horrible guy, and some people would say that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't even in the temple. So, how did Jesus consider this his father's house? I think it was because the average Jew believed that God lived there. That's where they went. That was God's. That's where the Jews believed that God was living. And then John stops all the action and he gives us a little bit of a commentary. And he says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. He tells us what goes on in the disciples' heads and it says they remembered scripture. And that's why it's important for us as Christians to know what scripture says to know the Bible, not just the New Testament, not just the few bits that we think we need to do. No, we need to, need, we need to know all of it. Yes. So that we can remember things. When something happens, you're not just naively looking at it, you can look into the scriptures and see, oh yes, this is what God says about this and this. So the, the passage or the little thing that they remember is from Psalm 69. And there's quite a few references to Jesus, and it's also David who writes it, so it's a bit confusing of what is actually fitting to Jesus, what's not. So on, but um, there's two verses here, and just they quote just a little bit. Um, Psalm 69, verse 8 and 9 says, I have become a stranger to my brother, and a foreigner to my mother's sons, because the zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insult of those who insult you have fallen on me. Jesus felt such a passion for the temple. And for how the Jews celebrated the festivals that he, God, had told them to do. That he just couldn't look at it anymore. He had to do something about it. He had to clear it out. And he cleared out this court for the Gentiles, or this Gentile court. This was a place where the Gentiles could come those who were not Jews and it was full of animals, full of money changers, full of business. God had made a place for people to come and worship Him and yet those who worshipped Him as their God built up all this place. God always wanted all peoples from all tongues, tribes and nations to come and worship Him. God was always about revealing Himself to all peoples. And Jesus saw that this marketplace was taking away room for Gentiles who wanted to worship God. And then we go on to a little bit more confusion if you're not confused enough yet by what Jesus does. Um, verse 18 to 22. That's the next section. And um, nobody seemed to stop Jesus doing what he was doing. Nobody dares stand in his way while he destroys the money-making machine. And not even the religious leaders who were making the most profit of it. They don't even stop him. They don't come over and knock him over and try to stop this whole thing. They only ask him one question. What sign do you show us for these things? Basically asking, give us a sign so we know what, on what authority you're doing these things. And last week we had Frank and he shared with us that Jesus did seven, or John recorded seven signs that Jesus did so they would show and reveal something about Jesus' character. So here was the perfect time for Jesus to do a sign, to do a miracle that would convince everyone that he was God, God's son. And I think the reason why nobody could stop him is a prophecy to the prophet of Malachi. Um, in, In Malachi 3, The first two verses, it says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and we've heard about the messenger before, John the Baptist, who will prepare a way for me. Then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. See, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like the refiner's fire, like the launderer's soap. So if we look back just a little bit into the first chapter, we see that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, sent people to John the Baptist to say, who are you? Who gave you the right to speak like this to us? Who are you? Are you Elijah? That question already shows, are you the forerunner for the Messiah? And John, just says, no, no, I'm not I'm not this, I'm not that. And then he gives them a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, when he says, I'm just a voice in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So the leaders in, Egypt, in Jerusalem were aware that there was somebody who was claiming to be the forerunner for the Messiah. So things were lining up for the Messiah to come. Everything seemed to be pointing that way. And now this guy comes into the temple, and creates this chaos. And these leaders who are asking Jesus, give us a sign for your authority. They know the scriptures. They know that prophecy that I just read, that suddenly the Lord will come in. So they want to know, is it the Messiah? Yes, no? Could it be? Give us a sign, Jesus. And if he really is God's son, surely he could perform a miracle. A sign that they all would believe and that was it. And just a few verses earlier in um, John 2, verse 11, we read that's when Jesus made water into wine. This is the first sign Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus did do the miracles so people would believe in him. But Jesus does not do any miracle for them. Once again, Jesus does something that is very surprising to me and was, I'm sure, surprising for the guys. He just gives them a question, a riddle, a challenge. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And for us, as non-Greek speakers, so we've got one Greek speaker here, but I don't know if you read your Bible in Greek. Um <laughs> There's actually two words that are used here in this, in this passage. When Jesus comes into the temple, there's a, I'm not going to try and pronounce the words. There's a word that describes this whole thing, the whole complex of the temple. But the word Jesus is using here is not this big temple complex. The word Jesus is using here is something to the effect of a dwelling place. God's dwelling place. It was used also for shrines or just the uh, the sanctuary, so the most holy place in the temple. So Jesus didn't say, "Destroy this whole temple complex and I will build it up in three days," but he said he actually spoke of his body, as we read later, and that will have confused the Jews even more. So here's this guy who chases up all these animals, throws all the stuff on the floor, says, "This is my father's house." And now he says, destroy this place and I will build it in three days. That's what they understood. If you see somebody like that, what would you think? Crazy. It's crazy. He's gone mad. Something's wrong. He's Completely lost the plot. Yeah, he comes into the temple at the busiest times, drives out all the animals, all the sellers, creates chaos, throws money around, says the temple is his father's house. So he's claiming to be equal with God. And now he's saying that he's going to tear all this down and then raise, build it up in three days. There's no other way but to say this guy has lost his mind. Completely gone mad. And so they remind Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, Herod's been building this temple for 46 years already and he's still building it. Yeah, and according to historians, he would still build another 30 years to finish the temple after Jesus' death. And this, it seems that this claim of Jesus, that tear this temple down, I will build it in, rebuild it in three days, really hurt the Jewish leaders. Because they will keep bringing it up to him, even in his trial, before his death, three years later. And even on the cross, they will come up and say, you said you will tear this down. They twist his words a little bit, but they say, you say you will tear it down, and build it up in three days. And now you're hung on the cross. You can't even save yourself from them. They didn't understand what he really meant. And neither did his disciples. They had no idea what he was speaking about. They must have thought something happened to Jesus. is not normal. And the zeal for the house of the Lord had driven... They maybe thought, the zeal for the house of the Lord had driven him in but mad. And again, John stops and gives, gives us a little commentary here in verse 21 and 22. He gives us a little insight what happens in the head. Jesus was very, very clear on what he said. And why he said it. God is the best communicator. God created language. God is the perfect communicator. And here Jesus, I believe, chose to miscommunicate or chose to communicate in a way that they wouldn't understand. Every word that he said had weight. He never said a word that didn't... was just a throwaway thing. Maybe I'm, I'm sure he joked, and, but I think even in his jokes, every word had weight. It was no useless thing. Jesus was telling them that his body, he meant his body, and that his enemies would put him to death. And he was speaking to his enemies, who would later put him to death. But they would put him to death. They would destroy the temple, the dwelling place of God among the people. But he would bring it back to life three days later. It wasn't angels or anything else that brought him back to life. It was Jesus himself. It was the Father and the Spirit, and somehow God works together to raise him up. Jesus spoke of the temple of his body. And Je- John uses this word by referring uh, to us as though it's not actually John, it's other people, other. Like Paul uses the same word to describe us as Jesus' body. So we're not meant to be this temple complex as a church. We're meant to be the dwelling place of God among the people. And when Jesus was here on earth, we read that he was the dwelling place of the fullness of God. God fully showed himself in Jesus. That's what we read in Colossians 2 verse 9. Jesus was God in the flesh. He would die and he would come back to life. The temple that Herod built would stand for a few years, and then in AD 70, it was destroyed to really never be rebuilt again until the end of time, and you can we can have debates on when that will happen, but um, it won't be, well, it wasn't for at least 2,000 years almost that the temple has been destroyed. So clearly Jesus didn't mean that temple. And John also says that clearly the, Jew, uh, the disciples didn't understand Jesus. And it took him a while, it took him about three years to understand what Jesus meant with this word. It was only after the resurrection that they again remembered Scripture and remembered what Jesus said to them. And again here's a challenge to us. How well do I know Scripture? When something happens, can I go to the scripture? Can I find comfort? Can I find advice, direction from the scriptures? Don't let your life make sense of the Bible, let the Bible make sense of your life. Yes. Don't take your experience and read them into the Bible, but take your experience and read the Bible and learn from what the Bible says about your experience. The Bible is the final authority. And if you're an underliner, uh, Um, I'd suggest in the Gospel of John you underline the word believe it's one of the major things as we've read earlier in John 20 he says I want you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God it appears in 86 verses the word believe and it's John's declared aim of the whole account of Jesus' life that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that you would be, by believing in Him, you would have life in His name. I know we only read until verse 22. But the next person is going to start in chapter 3 verse 1. So we're going to have a quick look at verse 23 to 25. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name, when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them, because He knew all people. And needed no one to bear, bit, bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. John continues his commentary here. On the situation. And we learn that many believed in Jesus because of his signs. People were convinced he was someone special. But they didn't quite understand who he was. And what he'd come for. And people loved signs and miracles. Spectacles. That's what people go to in flocks. And unfortunately in this time and throughout all of history, I think, people have used it, and unfortunately it's in the church as well that there are people who do these miracles. And they have big gatherings where come here and you will everyone will be healed and all these things. And they draw masses. People trust miracles. But they don't know the word of God. And the interesting thing is that Jesus didn't trust people who just trusted miracles. Jesus didn't trust people who followed him just for the spectacular. It says there that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. The word entrust is the same word as the word believe in Greek. It means to be convinced of something. To convince somebody of something. Did Jesus not want everyone to follow him? Did Jesus not want everyone to be saved? We read that he doesn't want anyone to perish. So, why did he do that? And I think it's got something to do with what we read in earlier in this chapter, in um, John 2, verse 4, where he says, My hour has not yet come. Again, if you're an underliner, try and find the places where it says, My hour, my hour, the hour. It's an interesting study. So Jesus just said these things. He didn't actually try and convince the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that I am the son of God. Look, I can do this sign. He didn't. He could have done, but they would have trusted the miracle, the sign. Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. He knew that if they didn't believe who he was, if they didn't really understand who he was, they would have not really trusted him for for their lives, for their eternity. And to this day, Jesus knows everything there is in every person. And I found it fascinating to think through Jesus' life from the perspective that he knew what was in every, every person's mind. How he treated Judas. How he treated the Pharisees. How he treated people that came to him and disrespected him. Rejected him when they understood who he was. And yet he loved every single one of them. And looking at ourselves, I can't speak for you, but I know myself, and I know what I struggle with, what I, I know the evil of my own heart. And Jesus knows it too, and yet he still loves me. And he knew that in those days, the Pharisees, the leaders, the religious leaders of the Jews were not ready. They were too proud. They did not want to accept his authority. They were not willing to bow to his authority and divinity. And Jesus didn't want to understand them. Didn't want them to understand. At least yet. Next time, Owen's going to tell us about one of the guys who really wanted to understand. Nicodemus. But yeah, that's that's what Jesus did. And how does all this apply to our lives? So the goal of John's gospel, the declared goal and aim of John's gospel is that these signs that are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So how can we see from this passage that Jesus is God's Son? He says it himself. So all you need to do is you need to read and believe. But Jesus cleaned out his father's house, the irreverent money-making machine from the temple. It would come back, It was back very, very quickly, but for that time, it was done. And to you and to me in our own lives, is there any leaven in our lives? Is there anything that is in our lives that's come in our lives, crept into our lives, that does not help us worship God, that works against God, that is not honoring God, that is serving you and just focused on yourself? Does it anger you when you see things happening in church or among Christians that are against Christ, that are diverting from Christ? Am I passionate about reaching those who don't know Jesus? Does my heart beat for them? Do I desire to see my church, to be a church that reaches out to all peoples? And we've got Barnabas and Tabea here who want to go out, and we've got others from new tribes who have the same desire. Is there anything that as a church we can do to help reaching the unreached yes sending people is there anything that we can do anything that needs to go that we need to take away so we can reach those on the doorsteps Jesus the son of God gave himself a substitute for everyone everyone who would believe just as in Egypt the lamb even the Egyptians could have killed the lamb and listened to Moses and done the same and God would have gone past their house. Jesus gave himself as a substitute. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to have everlasting life. Jesus knows the future and the past. This temple that he raised in three days was his body, and it's the same word that's used of us as a church. So we are his hands, his feet, his mouth to this world. We don't need to be shy about Christ, we can be bold because we came in the authority of God, he gave us authority and he gave us the the command the great commission and the only way we can become a part of this body is by believing him by trusting him Jesus knows everything and just as he did in the past, he still knows everything Jesus knows my heart and he knows your heart And despite of all this knowledge and understanding that he has about us, he loves us. He loves you. He loves me. And he came to give his life even for those Jewish leaders who would then go on to disbelieve him, to reject him, and to eventually kill him. But he came for them too. And just the same way he came for me and for you to die and to pay for our sins. And Jesus loves you. And he's come to each of us in grace and in truth. He might have to clear your heart, cleanse your heart of things with a whip, maybe with some shouting and pain. But if we think about it beforehand, we can avoid some of the pain. We can come to Christ and say, Look, I understand, I've messed up. Don't wait until he comes with a whip. He loves you and he forgives you. And there's nothing that we can do that is so far from him to forgive us. And he wants to give us abundantly the joys of eternal life, and this gen- glorious generosity. And if all this that I said today went over your head, please come and talk to me, <laughs> or to any of us. And if, if this doesn't apply to you yet, if you feel like you're still like one of the Pharisees or Jewish leaders, it's like, I don't understand. This Jesus is just weird. Come and chat to us. Because Jesus wants everyone to be saved. As we heard from Barnabas that really fit well, the verses from Romans. Faith comes from the Word of God. Faith doesn't come from signs. Signs may accompany the Word to be a, uh, another layer of convincing, but faith comes from the Word of God. If you trust in signs, you're trusting in the wrong thing. Yeah. Okay, that's all I had to say. I'm going to pray and hand back to think the worship team. Yeah. Our God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for this account of Jesus um, cleansing the temple. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us so much that you sent, you came. You lived your life here, rejected and disbelieved, even killed and tortured for us and for those who did that to you and we thank you for that. We thank you that you are the son of God, that we can learn that in the scriptures. And I pray that as a church, we would learn your word. We would know your word and that our experience here will be shaped by your word. And we would not bend your word to fit our experience. I pray clean us, cleanse us where we need it. And I know it's a dangerous prayer and it's a painful prayer. But I pray that you would work on my heart first and foremost and on everyone else's heart here, and on the heart of our congregation. And Father, we thank you, we love you, and we want to honor you. Amen.